This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast, 
with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Rob Bellot. Now, for those of you that have seen the film Dark Waters or the documentary The Devil We Know, you will be somewhat familiar with Rob's story. In 1997, after just making partner in his law firm, he was approached by a farmer from West Virginia. Now, this farmer was losing all of his cattle to a host of diseases and was convinced that the root cause was the landfill owned by DuPont next to his farm. Rob initially took on the case thinking it was going to be a quick win, but it ended up taking over 14 years to find a resolution. Now, what is terrifying, as you will hear on this podcast, the chemicals in question are in Teflon, they're in AFFF firefighting foam, and even in our bunker gear. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Rob Bellot. Enjoy. Well, Rob, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Jim for uh, connecting us, Jim Bernica, and secondly, to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So as we discussed right before I hit record, um, I heard your interview with Jim. I've watched um, Dark Waters, the dramatized version of what we're going to talk about today, the documentary, The Devil We Know, and the relevance to the fire service community as well, I think is important. But I mean, it's such a powerful story that needs to be heard. So uh, I'm very, very excited for this conversation. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? <laughs> I met you. I'm actually speaking to you from my home in Northern Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. Beautiful. So I would love to start at the very beginning. Obviously, you're known for this one chapter of your life, but I kind of want to walk through um, to how you got there in the first place. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. Yeah, my dad was in the Air Force. So I was born actually in uh, Latham, New York, right outside of Albany, um, when my dad was stationed there at the time, right before he had to go off to, to Vietnam for, for a year or two. Uh, we moved around a bit as a kid, but grew up. We kind of came back and forth a lot to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, right outside of Dayton, Ohio. So I uh, went, to, went to high school there, graduated there, and uh, ended up going to a small college down in Florida, a new college in Sarasota, Florida, and then uh, on to law school at Ohio State. Um, and then after graduating there in 1990, um, went to the Taft Law Firm, Taft, Statinius, and Hollister in Cincinnati. And that's where I've been the, uh, gosh, it's going to be 32 years in September. 
Amazing. Well, it's a hell of a journey from being a new partner all the way to, to where you are now. Obviously, we'll <laughs> weave through that in a little bit. Going all the way back to your father for a second, though, the Vietnam generation, um, sadly, when we look back now, were not very well taken care of. These men and women, some enlisted, some obviously were conscripted, um, did not get the ticker tape parades when they came home. So, as you know, an older man now, looking back, did you observe any of the kind of mental health impacts of that deployment on your father? You know, it uh, was interesting. I went, growing up, you know, with uh, a parent in the military. You know, we lived outside military bases, and um, we were living in communities where, gosh, it seemed like everybody. I just assumed as a kid, everybody's dad, you know, put a uniform on in the morning <laughs> before they went to went to work. Um, and really, he didn't talk about it. Uh, I didn't really hear much about it until many years later, really, when I was in high school, just never mentioned it, never came up, you know, what didn't even realize until later that, that he had been gone almost two years, right, after I had been born. So um, something he really didn't talk about much. Um, uh, you know, I think it was, as, as you can imagine, not a, a pleasant time, uh, but he actually was... Um, a navigator on B-52s and fighter jets, and um, then uh, was an engineer and spent a lot of time in the um, sort of the intelligence side of the Air Force Foreign Technology Division. And unfortunately, we uh, lost him just last year and passed away. Um, but um, uh, just had a fascinating career. He uh, uh, spent over 20 years in the Air Force and Actually, it was when I was in high school, he decided he was going to start a new career, go to law school. So that's what kind of got me motivated to look into law was he was graduating from law school about the time I was getting out of college and trying to decide what I was going to do with my career. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's the problem you know, we, we saw with that generation. And I think that's a lot of the statistics that we're seeing now with the suicides. You had the Vietnam generation, you know, they, they weren't able to process what what they went through, what they did for this country. They jumped into a career of some sort. And now, from what I understand, that generation is now retiring. And now they're away from the distractions. Oh. They're away from that purpose. And now I think a lot of those things are starting to come back. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a difficult situation to deal with, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, going back to your childhood as well, because this is obviously a pertinent part of the story as we get into it. Talk to me about um, spending time with your grandmother and being in West Virginia. Yeah, you know, we would we would move around a bit, but uh, we would always end up in Parkersburg as when I was a kid in West Virginia. My mom and her whole family was from there, and so on holidays, um, birthdays, and such, we would we would drive to Parkersburg and um, spend time there. And uh, my my. Uh, grandmother and my great-grandmother and grandfather, great-grandfather, uh, lived. they had a house that looked over the Ohio River. You know, you could see kind of the smokestacks of the factories along the river there and, and really spent a lot of time as a kid in that neighborhood, in that community, kind of saw it as sort of a hometown. Um, uh, so it was a place I knew well and a place that had changed a lot over the years. But um, you know, I still remember uh, folks referring to it even then when I was a kid as Cancer Alley, uh, you know, and people having to go uh, get their car washed and when they would get a coupon uh, from one of the local companies that was uh, apparently it had some sort of 
incident, you know, where stuff had gone into the air. So they were going to have to go get their car washed. And those were the kinds of things that were just taken as normal, you know, and that, that's, that's the way it was in that community. So when you look back at your childhood, as we're going to get into, you became, you know, a, a warrior for, for good, basically, you know, aside from many of the other people in your firm, many other people in your profession, um, you, you took on a fight that probably was <laughs> career wise, maybe not the most wise initially. Um, when you look at your upbringing, your mother, your father, what, where do you kind of attribute some of that altruism and some of that, um, protector mentality that you had to lean into as you got older? Well, you know, I think we were just taught there were, there were things that you did and things that you did that were, that were the right thing to do. Um, you know, in this, this particular case fit right in uh, to that mold. You know, these were people from what I kind of viewed as my hometown that were looking for help that, uh, you know, were coming to me asking, you know, uh, that can't I help them? And um, I, I thought I could. And to me, you know, it really wasn't uh, a hard decision, you know, to, to know what needed to be done. Um, and particularly as we kind of delved into this whole story and started to figure out that what we were dealing with went far beyond just one family in that community. This was something that was impacting the entire area. Um, and then to realize it wasn't just that, you know, this was something that could be impacting the whole country, if not the whole world. Uh, so it really, to me, was something that, at least the way I was brought up, uh, this is this is something you needed to do, needed to help on. Beautiful. Well, starting on your journey into law then, I know initially you were um, defending corporations. So what brought you into the law firm and what made you choose that particular area of law? Well, you know, as I mentioned, my dad was just starting his legal career. And he actually started with the um, uh, attorney general's office in Ohio, then the city of Dayton as a prosecutor. And and so he really ha hadn't had any experience at a law firm, you know, and nobody in my family had ever been a lawyer working at a law firm. So I really didn't know what it, that involved. So uh, graduating from law school, uh, started interviewing and um uh, one of the firms um, that I that I met with was the Taft firm in Cincinnati, and they, you know they extended me an offer. And I noticed that they had a group that they called the Environmental Practice Group, um, and really not knowing what that meant, other than it triggered a memory I had of a course that I had taken in law school that I thought was interesting: environmental law, uh, something I thought was really kind of real world, concrete. Uh, as opposed to tax or, <laughs> or something like that. So, uh, you know, I decided to join that group, really not knowing what that would entail. And that was in 1990. And at that point in time, a lot of what that group was doing was working with big companies, uh, a lot of big chemical companies and other big corporate clients, really trying to help them navigate the kind of complex world of federal and state environmental rules and regulations. You know, what are you allowed to emit into the air or into the water? And how do you get permits to operate landfills? And, um, you know, and, and I spent eight years really kind of learning that system from scratch, uh, trying to understand how all that fit together. And I thought I understood it fairly well, you know, that we had this very comprehensive, complex system 
that identified the toxic, nasty stuff in our, in our world and told us how much was safe and how much was not safe. And as long as we were abiding by those rules and, you know, we were doing what we needed to do to protect the environment. Um, and, you know, what we were also doing at the time um, was a lot of what they call Superfund cleanup. Uh, in the 80s and early 90s, there were a lot of these sites, hazardous waste, abandoned dump sites and hazardous waste sites all over the country. And we were working with our clients, negotiating with other big chemical companies, uh, who pays how much to clean these things up. So I, I, I had spent a lot of time meeting a lot of lawyers at other big chemical companies and and um, uh, working with these other companies and meeting their lawyers and really, you know, uh, felt like I understood that world pretty well. Um, and that all changed <laughs> in 1998 when I got the call from Mr. Tennant in West Virginia. Well, just prior to that, <clears throat> when you think of corporations, usually it's kind of, again, a very black and white lens that we get. Either there's the capitalist mentality, well, it's a necessary evil, you know, we've got to forge ahead, you know, we're the, 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 the superpower in the world. Um, and it's just a very pro-corporate, um, you know, monopoly-chasing mentality. Conversely, corporations are the boogeyman, and they can do no right. When you boil it down, I actually heard a, a, a guru on Joe Rogan's podcast a while ago kind of call him out on that, saying, you know, calling them the bad guys. He's like, well, and he was implying basically that even people in there, there's a mental health element that makes you maybe deviate from one, what one would call ethics in pursuit of happiness, maybe. So in those first eight or nine years, what was your view as far as the ethics of some of the corporations that you were working with at that point? Yeah, you know, I, um, I, I, I don't agree that you can necessarily, you know, say that there's these, everybody in the corporate world is one way, everybody on the other side is, I, I just really don't agree with that mindset. I mean, you're talking about um, folks that are trying to do the right thing. You know, most of the folks we were dealing with, our clients, these were people that were trying to understand the rules in the law, that were trying to do what they were required to do. Um, you know, you, you may see every now and then somebody that was trying to get around it or trying to find a clever way to do this or that, but that was tended to be the exception. Um, and, you know, it, it's, that's why, you know, when I first started getting into this story and starting to see what I was seeing, I had such a hard time um, actually believing that what was happening was actually happening because that didn't track with the kind of mindset of the folks I had been dealing with. Um, it wasn't the kind of behavior that I had seen. Um, and, you know, this, this really was um, an aberration. You know, it wasn't the norm, what we were seeing here uh, going on in West Virginia. Um, so, you know, I think you, 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 when you talk about companies or corporations, you're talking about lots of people. You know, these, are, these companies are made up of lots of individuals and lots of people. So you, you, it's really, I think, dangerous to paint them with one, one, you know, one, one, one brush. Yeah, well, I agree completely. I think that's what you find in so many areas, whether it's, you know, the, the mask conversation we had recently or, you know, whatever it is. If you create a boogeyman and create two extreme sides, nothing ever 
you know, is fixed. But if you humanize it and realize maybe within an organization there are a handful of people who are very unscrupulous, but overall, like you said, most people are going to work trying to, you know, make some money so they can feed their family and put a roof over their head. I think that's a, that's a very important kind of perspective that, that we need. And then, as you said, amongst that, um, you know, environment, if there are some bad apples as there are in the fire service and law enforcement and, and the legal system, then we can identify them and, and laser point, you know, hone in on those individuals. Yeah, you know, in this case, I think is a dramatic example of that. This was a situation where we saw some pretty egregious bad actors and things that were being done that were not the norm. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why our law firm, you know, which it's traditionally represented big companies and in and, and, uh, big business type interests, you know, w- agreed to take on this particular case. You know, you see this guy kind of, I think, demonstrated in the scene in Dark Waters, you know, where we're talking about why, why this is the right thing to do. I mean, because this was uh, uh, bad behavior and it wasn't the kind of thing that our clients would do or engage in. And, um, you know, why we felt so compelled that we needed to bring the story out and to get this fixed. Well, in true Hollywood fashion, even though this is real life, you are made a partner of the firm and almost, you know, synchronistically, a farmer walks into your legal office. So I'd love to kind of hear the backstory of that and then we'll walk through from there. And it was in 1998 where I got a call one day from a gentleman who started rattling on about the fact that I needed to help him figure out what was killing his cows. And this was a call I was about to hang up. You know, it's not the kind of thing that I, that I was doing at the time. And, and, but that's when he blurted out that he had gotten my name from my grandmother in Parkersburg. And that's when I paused and paid a little closer attention. And he started explaining how he had these animals uh, that he was raising on a farm in West Virginia and he was seeing white foam uh, coming out of a landfill next to his property. And he was convinced there was something in that foam, you know, that was killing his animals, making them sick. But nobody would talk to him. Nobody would take that, uh, take his calls. He had called the, the, the state uh, officials. He had called the federal officials. He had called the company that owned the landfill. Uh, it wasn't getting any answers and I needed to help. <laughs> so it's when I, I heard this story and I heard the connection with my grandmother, I thought, you know what? I help companies get permits to run landfills like this. And particularly when he mentioned who owned the landfill, DuPont. I knew that company. These were DuPont was one of those companies I, I mentioned that we would typically run into their lawyers at these super fun cleanup sites all over the country. Um, You know, we weren't representing that company, but I knew their lawyers. We would be in the same room negotiating over who paid how much to clean up these sites. And I felt pretty confident that this was a company that understood how these rules and laws worked. There was a landfill that was emitting something above their permit limits. They would probably be able to get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. So when I'm hearing this story and that it involved DuPont and it was a landfill, I thought, you know what, I, I bet I can, I can help him. This is what I do. I help companies get these types of permits. I know DuPont. So I invited him to come on up to our office and bring whatever he had. And he and his wife drove up, um, you know, the three hours from West Virginia to Cincinnati. And they were armed with videotapes and photographs and uh, uh, came into our offices and, 
It just so happened that Tom Turp, who was the head of our environmental group at the time, was 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 walking down the hall. So I invited him to come in and, and look at these videotapes as well. And, um, you know, we sat down and, and watched that and, and saw looked at those photographs and listened to the story. And it was pretty compelling. You know, you saw videotape of white foam coming out of the landfill marked E.I. DuPont de Nemours outfall. And you could see these animals standing in the foam and you could, he was zooming in. You could see deformities on these animals. You could see tumors. You could see they were wasting away uh, that, that there were animals that had died that he had cut into. In fact, if you see the film dark waters or the documentary, the devil you, we know those actual videotapes are incorporated into those films, you know, that he shot and you could see these deformed organs and blackened teeth. So to us, it was pretty compelling. There was something in that phone. There was something in that water. And we should be able to help him. Um, but, you know, this was a case that was obviously not like something we had handled before. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we, we talked about it and agreed, well, it should be a fairly straightforward, simple matter. You know, this was, after all, a landfill. It's just one farm in West Virginia. And uh, so we agreed to take that on. And that was October of 98. And it, and it definitely <laughs> did not turn out to be as simple and straightforward and narrow, just involving one farm that we thought. So the, the cows, obviously, you know, the, the actual farm itself was being affected. As you kind of go down this journey, talk to me about what you were discovering as far as the impact of the humans in the town as well. Well, you know, at, at this point, the only folks we were really talking to were the the Tennant family, Mr. Tennant and his wife and his, his daughters. And, um, you know, they were convinced that whatever was in this foam and in this landfill wasn't just affecting the cattle and it was affecting, first of all, other wildlife. There were deer in the area that were getting sick and dropping dead and the fish and the birds and the, 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 the you know, the other animals in the area. But he also was convinced that his family was getting sick. Yeah, you know, there would be vapor clouds that would rise up out of this landfill and blow across their property. And uh, they were having trouble breathing and coughing and feeling sick. Um, and um, uh, so they were really concerned about their own health as well. So uh, when we first, uh, you know, took this on, um, we were concerned that there was something there that was not only affecting the animals, but was possibly also affecting the people as well. So you, when you approach Dupont, obviously there's, there's, a, there's a, a manifest of what should be in that landfill. So what was it that you discovered? Well, you know, I approached it as I, as I thought you would do with a, any kind of regulated landfill. We started asking for the permits and we got those from the state and from also from Dupont. You know, Dupont was more than happy to give us the documents relating to the regulated materials in that landfill. Um, started pouring through all of that stuff. And, you know, there were um, materials that were listed on the permit. You know, you had certain limits. And, yeah, there were some things that were a little above the permit. But nothing really that would explain the white foam. Nothing that would explain the types of impacts we were seeing in these animals. So um, we really weren't finding anything in those permitting materials that would explain what was going on at the landfill seemed to be sort of a dead end. 
So <laughs> talk to me about the next step. You realize there's more to this. You you have a hunch that something is missing. You know, what were the next steps? And then what kind of information was then sent to your office? You know, I started thinking about what was going on here <laughs> with this landfill. And um, it was around the same time that we ended up getting a report um, from DuPont, where DuPont had early on told us, hey, you know, no need to really get into a bunch of discovery and all of these documents, because after all, we've, we've, we've reached out to the US EPA and we've put together a team of experts that are going to look at these cows and try to figure out what's really causing the problems here. Um, and so we got this report that came in. It was in early 2000. Um, and it essentially said we can't find any, any issues um, that as far as chemicals coming out of that landfill that are affecting these animals must just be these people don't know how to raise cattle. And, um, you know, it was at that point, <laughs> I started getting a little suspicious and I started um, starting to think back, you know, about what Mr. Tennant was saying, that something was being covered up, you know, and the company was working with the, the state regulators and they were all in this together. And I, you know, I had a hard time uh, really believing any of that at first. But then when I saw this report that deviated so dramatically from what was actually happening, you know, I'd been at that farm. I had seen the way these, these folks raised their animals. They knew how to raise cattle. They weren't abusing these animals. So I really started to wonder what was happening here? What was really going on? What's really getting into this landfill? And so I decided to, to reach out to DuPont, to DuPont and say, look, you know, I don't want just what's, what's regulated in your permit. I want to know everything that you're sending to that landfill, whether it's in the permit or not. Everything, because what we found out was that landfill was accepting waste from a massive manufacturing plant right down the road, right along the Ohio River. So we told them, we want to know everything you're making at that plant and what's going into this landfill, whether it's permitted or not. And then we got a big pushback. <laughs> Suddenly, the cooperative uh, attitude we had with DuPont evaporated. No, 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 no. This is, you know, you're, you're out of control. This is a fishing expedition. We, we are not getting into all this. We had to go to court, get an order to require them to turn over the documents. And when we started getting these documents and those, you know, keep in mind, this is back in early 2000. And, you know, back then it's kind of really right before people started putting everything on computers and emails and discs. So it was paper, you know, you see in the films, you see all these boxes. We did, we got all these boxes that came in. So um, started to pour through those. And I'm the kind of person, I don't want somebody else to just go look at that, give me a memo. I, I need to see this myself. So I started pouring through these documents myself, trying to organize them, you know, putting them in chronological order, reading through to try to piece together what was going on here. Um, and it was a ton of information. It took a long time, but what we started to piece together was there was, there was something all in that landfill that was creating foam. It was incredibly toxic um, and it wasn't on the permit. It wasn't regulated, yet it could have devastating impacts on not only on cows and wildlife, but also on human health. And so what we discovered was something that led us down a path 
where we now realize this same chemical is, is unfortunately now impacting the entire globe. So what was the chemical that you discovered? What we found was there was a chemical that DuPont had been using in the manufacture of Teflon. And this, this manufacturing plant I mentioned along the Ohio River just happened to be the world's largest Teflon manufacturing facility. And in the manufacture of Teflon, DuPont had been purchasing a chemical called PFOA, perfluorooctanoic acid, a chemical that has eight carbons attached to fluorine. So they also called it C8. DuPont had been buying this stuff from the 3M company up in Minnesota since as early as 1951 and using massive quantities of this chemical as a manufacturing aid in the process for making Teflon. And in that process, this chemical was emitted into the air. It was discharged into, uh, into the Ohio River and liquid sludges were dumped into unlined pits all around the property. And keep in mind, you know, this is beginning in the early 1950s, 1960s, in massive quantities. It's decades before the US EPA even existed. You know, US EPA wasn't formed until 1970. Some of the first laws, rules, regulations about to evaluating toxicity of chemicals rolled out in the late 70s. So this stuff starts rolling down to Parkersburg decades before in massive quantities, going into the air, into the water, into these unlined landfills. And what we saw, we started getting into these documents was, even though it predated the EPA and the regulations, DuPont itself in 3M had been studying this chemical because of its unique chemical structure. This stuff never existed on the planet prior to being invented by 3M, right, after, right around the time of World War II. And this, it had this unique chemical structure of carbons attached to fluorine, which made it really useful in manufacturing processes like DuPont's Teflon process, but it also made it incredibly strong and resistant to breaking down. So the companies understood early on that if it got out into the environment, it wouldn't break down. This stuff wouldn't biodegrade. In fact, in later years, we even had scientists tell us, you know, they talk about the the, uh, the, the life of these chemicals and geologic time scales. It would take thousands, if not millions of years for these, this chemical to start to break down on its own. So the companies realizing this stuff, when it gets out there, is going to stay almost forever. That's why you hear me refer to now as forever chemicals. They started evaluating the toxicity of it in the 60s, and they started finding this stuff was incredibly toxic. It had all kinds of toxic effects and multiple different animal species that were being tested. And, and by the 1980s, they'd even found that it caused cancer. They actually had done rat studies and found that the chemical caused testicular tumors in the rats. This is in the 1980s. By the early 90s, they had, they had done a second study confirming the testicular tumors and also liver and pancreatic tumors. DuPont had internally classified the chemical as a confirmed animal carcinogen, possible human carcinogen in the 80s. And so they, they had actually gone out and started looking for this stuff because they knew they were emitting it into the air and into the water. They knew they had public water well supply fields right downstream in West Virginia, on the West Virginia side, and right across the river, the way the air flowed. 
in, in Ohio. There were public water well fields. So they went out and collected drinking water samples secretly in the 80s and found that the chemical was in drinking water in Ohio and West Virginia, but didn't tell anybody because it was not regulated. <laughs> because by the time they were doing this, these laws and rules had rolled out, but those laws and rules really focused on new chemicals being made from that point going forward. For things that were already out there, like PFOA, the, the, the laws essentially said it was up to the companies making or using those to alert the EPA if there was some substantial risk to human health or the environment that required them to go back and look at it. Well, what we were seeing in these documents, they were doing all these studies, finding all these, all these toxic effects, carcinogenic effects, but the companies were deciding not to tell the EPA, even after they found it in the drinking water. Then the company actually came up with its own internal drinking water standard for the, for the stuff. No more than 0.6 parts per billion, which they rounded up to one, which was the, essentially the lowest you could detect it in the water at the time, all right? So, and they go out and then, and the sampling, that what they're finding in the water supplies is four to five times that. So what we saw in the, this, whole, this whole story as we're piecing it together, I'm reading all these documents is, that's how this stuff ended up in the landfill next to Mr. Tennant in Parkersburg. Because DuPont thought this stuff was leaking into the ground from the sludge they had dumped into these unlined pits at their property. So they went out and dug up all this sludge, 7,000 tons of PFOA-soaked sludge. And because it was still technically unregulated, they took it and dumped it into an unlined non-hazardous waste landfill, the landfill right next to Mr. Tennant's property. And it started seeping out into the creek. And sure enough, when it hits, you know, when the rain hits it and it hits the water, it foams. DuPont went out and actually tested the water in the creek in 1990, eight years before Mr. Tennant came to me. And they had found levels in the creek. Remember, their internal guideline was one part per billion. They found a thousand parts per billion in the creek and even speculated, what would this do to cows? So they hadn't told Mr. Tennant, but they knew what was going on. So needless to say, <laughs> by the time we piece this together, I was able to make a phone call to the folks at DuPont and we settled Mr. Tennant's case. But at that point, we realized we were dealing with a much bigger problem. And Mr. Tennant was very worried because what we were seeing was this stuff was in the public's drinking water in Ohio and West Virginia at levels above what the company itself said was appropriate. No one had been told. The regulators didn't know. The public didn't know. So at that point, we realized we had a huge public health threat on our hands that had gone unrecognized, and we might be the only ones who knew this outside of DuPont. I mean, firstly, thank you for, for bringing us up to that point. I mean, there's so much to, to digest just, to, just there. But then I think in the film and certainly in the documentary, you hear about 3M doing research and finding that there was an effect on the fetuses in the rat um, experiments where it was deforming the eyes. So you meet a young man, um, Bucky Bailey. So talk to me again about what you started to see as the actual ill health of the residents of that town in West Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. What was particularly disturbing, you know, going through these documents was to see what 
not only what the companies had known, you know, about the health effects of this stuff in the, all these laboratory animals, but to see what had been known about its impacts on humans. You know, as you mentioned, one of the very first studies that had come down uh, actually from 3M uh, was finding birth defects in the eyes of baby rats who were exposed to this chemical. And when, when they notified their customer, DuPont, you know, who'd been purchasing this stuff, uh, DuPont set up a study uh, to look at the children born to women who were exposed to this chemical on the Teflon mines in West Virginia. Um, and actually what, what they found was there had been seven children born. Two of them, two of the seven had eye defects. One of those was Bucky Bailey, uh, a young man who you see in the films, in the, in the documentary and, and in Dark Waters. He was gracious enough to, to come and, and, and uh, do a cameo in the film as well. Um, but, you know, these were real people, real children being exposed to these chemicals. And, you know, the fact that the company had this data showing this was happening, not just in rats, but that two out of seven women, human babies, had been experiencing the same issue. That study was never finalized, never published, never sent to the government agencies. And the, the people were never told this. And it didn't come out until years later. So it, it was, that was the kind of information that we felt was necessary to get out to the public, get out to the regulators. Most importantly, get out to the people who are exposed, the people at the plant, the people in that community who were breathing this, drinking this, you know, being exposed to it on a daily basis and had no idea. We'll just circle around to the ethics if we don't already need to underline the lack of in this conversation so far. Talk to me about the experiment they did with some of the workers and the cigarettes with the PFAS and the other chemicals. Well, one of the one of the early studies that we uncovered was a document that was indicating that at one point, and this is in the early 60s, and you have to remember that it was around 1961, 1962 that DuPont starts commercializing Teflon. You know, it, it starts going out on pans, starts uh, going out into the consumer market. And it, it was around that period of time that there was a study indicating that workers um, were given cigarettes that had Teflon, um, you know, the actual material on the ends of the cigarettes. Um, and, you know, to, they were asked to report what happened, you know, when this was heated up. And what you see is basically what's called Teflon flu or the polymer fume fever, that when you heat this material, it creates this um, gas, this off-gassing um, that creates flu-like symptoms. Um, and in fact, for years, if you had gone on the DuPont website, um, there would be disclosures, you know, about do not overheat your Teflon pan. Don't keep birds in the kitchen near your pan. You know how you always hear the story of canaries in the coal mine, you know, because they have such sensitive lungs. Well, you have, unfortunately, um, uh, well-documented cases where uh, birds, you know, that were in kitchens where these, or this Teflon material was overheated would be seriously impacted by these fumes. Um, so, you know, you even had situations at the DuPont plant where they even had uh, bird crews, you know, where, where birds flying over the smokestacks would drop out of the sky, you know, as this stuff was, was heated and got into the air. So um, it was unfortunately 
um, <laughs> a well docked, a well documented phenomenon. Um, you know that this stuff could have these effects on people. So there's a scene in the film as well when you're trying to bring this to court, and that one part per billion is suddenly changed by an expert in that courtroom. So if you wouldn't mind, gonna walk me through that, and then and then let's talk about you know obviously there was that one settlement, but how this became a multi multifaceted approach. You know, there was a point in time where, you know, I mentioned that DuPont had its own internal drinking water guideline that they had developed in the 1980s, you know, no more than 0.6 parts per billion, which they rounded up to one part per billion. And when we finally figured out what was happening here, and we had, we had made the decision to try to bring claims on behalf of the whole community through a class action lawsuit to get people clean water and medical testing, um, we, we really based that lawsuit on the fact that this stuff was in the water above DuPont's own guideline. Because remember, there were no state or federal guidelines for this chemical since the regulators didn't even know about it. So um, as soon as we filed that, DuPont, realizing this whole case hinged on their own internal one part per billion guideline, tried to create a, a way to, to, to come up with a higher number, one that was a, quote, government-approved standard. So they uh, entered into a deal. They negotiated a deal with the state of West Virginia's EPA to, put, to create another team, kind of like what they had done with the cattle team before with US EPA. Um, they would set up this team, and of course, DuPont's own scientists would be on the team, and they would come up with this new number. And um, it was quite amazing. <laughs> the science didn't change. There was no new data. All that happened was a new process was set up where the DuPont folks, DuPont consultants, and then people brought in from the state were to announce a new number. Um, and they did that uh, in May of 2002. Uh, they made this announcement as if it was a government number, they came out and said the new number was 150 parts per billion, um, which was outrageous. And you know, uh, years later, of course, everybody rejected. Um, but um, <laughs> that was the announcement that was made uh, to try to reassure the public everything is fine here. And DuPont never changed its own internal number. <laughs> yeah, their own scientists didn't even accept that. Yeah, it's crazy. So with that, you know, obviously you move forward with the case. As we kind of follow through in the film or the documentary, you start learning of, you know, the the dental impact on, on the community, tumors, cancers, deaths. So as this slowly unfolds and your your kind of perspective gets wider and wider, what were you starting to see on the as far as the impact on the residents of that town? And and especially the people that were working in the plant. Well, you know, as we as we learned more about um, the chemical and what was known internally, as we got more documents, more studies, more history of what the companies knew, not only were we seeing that there had been a number of studies of the workers, you know, and those those studies among the workers were showing increased cancer rates, um, liver enzyme impacts, other other issues that were being investigated. Um, what we also then were learning, of course, were people were coming forward from the community with stories of cancers 
and other health impacts and, you know, teeth issues. And, and, and it wasn't just the people, it was the pets. You know, there, was, there were stories of an incredible amount of tumors and, and cancers among cats and dogs in the area. Uh, so it really became, um, you know, pretty powerful <laughs> uh, uh, evidence coming forward that something was going on in this community that was not normal, that the, the health impacts here seemed to be pretty severe. So it was something we really wanted to make sure we understood, which was exactly what can this chemical do to people, you know, and, and what, um, you know, how much of what we were hearing was related to this chemical. Now, another, you know, one of the the through lines in the story is that dichotomy between wanting to fight this kind of, you know, this this cancer causing element, but also DuPont being the primary employer in the town. So what what was your observation of that tension? I mean, I know it seems like from the films that some of the people that stuck their neck out to to um, I hate the word whistleblower, but to advocate for everyone else also got demonized in their own community. Yeah, it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult situation uh, to be in. You, you're, in a, you're in a community where, you know, this particular company is revered as a great employer, you know, a great patron of the local community and the community groups and helping with funding. And a lot of folks either work there themselves or they have family that work there. Or they know somebody that works there. You know, it's an integral part of that community. So to suggest that something this bad could be happening, a lot of people just don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to think, you know, that that's that something like that can be happening. They want to, to hope that it's wrong. Um, and in fact, you know, when we finally got to the point where we were setting up these, these big health studies, you know, we ended up getting 69,000 people within a community estimated to be 70,000 who came forward and provided blood and provided health data. And a lot of those people who came forward, came forward hoping it would help prove that there wasn't a problem, that this, that the, you know, this hadn't really been as bad as people were, were saying, that there weren't health effects associated with this. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's understandable. Um, um, and it's, it was a very difficult thing for the folks that stood up and were, were wanting to make sure this was pushed forward. You see some of that um, depicted in the films, you know, the pushback that these people, um, unfortunately, the pe- folks like the Tennant family or the Kigers, you know, had to endure um, as this story was unfolding. Um, it continues to this day, by the way. You know, there's still great loyalty um, to the company, um, to this kind. Uh, you know, it, you're dealing with a situation where, um, you know, it's difficult uh, to find employment. And, you know, it's, you've, you've got good paying jobs um, and you, you've got a lot of folks. I, I still remember when a researcher came out to the community and asked folks, this is after all of this story finally came out people were, you know, finally realized what had really happened here, that this did happen, you know, that this poisoning occurred for decades. And you still had people saying, well, you know, you got to die of something. So it's cancer. At least I had a good job. And that's that, that type of mindset and attitude, uh, unfortunately, still prevails in a lot of folks um, who, who, who honestly believe that that's that's the trade-off, you know, that that's fair for them to accept that they should, ex- they, that they might get cancer in order to get a good job. 
And so it's, um, you know, it's a really difficult situation in communities like this. When I think of West Virginia, sadly, one of the things that pops in my mind is the opioid crisis. And when you take away mines, when you take away, you know, steel mills, whatever the industry is that goes overseas, you are left with a giant void. Do you think there was an element of watching surrounding towns and cities go through that kind of crisis that kept people clinging on to DuPont so loyally? Yeah, I'm sure it's a combination of all kinds of things like that, you know, where, you know, again, you're in a community that, um, uh, you know, these are some of the best paying jobs, some of the most stable jobs and really, you know, gives the community identity. Um, you know, if you drive through this area, you'll see signs that say, you know, welcome to the polymer alliance zone, <laughs> you know, or the chemical alliance. I mean, this is a matter of pride, you know, that these companies are there and that these products are being manufactured there. Um, and, you know, people want to keep them there. Um, and, you know, you see that tension uh, building up again now as DuPont, uh, you know, has spun off this whole Teflon business into a new company called Comores and what was left of DuPont merged with Dow and a split into other companies and plants are closing and workers are being laid off. There's a real concern you know, that what's going to happen to these jobs now, you know, and, and uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a continuing issue. Um, and one, I think it's going to continue for a long time. Now, again, another through line that's evident in the film is the stress on you and your family. So you're fighting this battle, there seems to be no end in sight. Talk to me about, you know, your mental health journey as, as you are trying to fight this, this behemoth that is DuPont. You know, it was a uh, definitely a stressful uh, situation, and you see that in the film. And I talk about it in in, in a lot of detail in the book. Exposure, you know, just um, what that was like during those periods of time. You know, because it's um, it, you have to remember we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. We didn't know how these processes would work. You know, we didn't know whether this class action lawsuit would would prevail. I mean, these were sort of innovative issues we were pursuing at the time. When we set up these big health studies, you know, with tens of thousands of people, nobody had really ever done that before. We had no idea how long this would take, you know, and as it ended up, it stretched out six, seven years. And in the meantime, you know, people are continuing to get sick. People are being diagnosed. People are dying. And you're hearing those stories. I'm getting those phone calls. You, know, you see a little bit of that in the film. You know, I'm getting calls from folks, um, you know, that's uh, what's going on. Why is this taking so long? You know, and um, at the same time, you have to remember what period of time this was occurring. You know, this was uh, happening during 2008, 2011. The economy was imploding back then. You know, the, the, we were in a massive economic meltdown. People were losing their jobs. And, and you know, to, to, to be working on something like this where we didn't know what the outcome was going to be and had so many people depending on you and realizing, you know, this was, a, this was something that could impact not just all the people in this community, but worldwide. You know, at this point, we realized this chemical was a part of a family of chemicals. We now call PFAS, P-F-A-S. PFOA was just one of hundreds, if not thousands of these chemicals, these man-made toxins that were now, we realized, in products all over the place, not just Teflon, 
but stain-resistant waterproof clothing, carpeting, fast food wrappers and packaging, firefighter foam, uh, computer chips, cosmetics. And they weren't just used it with DuPont. It was in other places all over. And this stuff we were realizing because sampling had been going on was being found in drinking water all over the United States and in other places of the world. And most importantly, the chemicals were being found in the blood of almost every person on the planet. It was being found in 99% of the humans that were being tested. So we realized how important this science was going to be, how important the outcome of this process was. And, you know, to kind of have the weight of that, knowing we've got to keep, make sure that this is seen through to its conclusion, that the scientists aren't compromised, that this process, you know, isn't derailed, that we get to the end point because, you know, there's public health issues riding on it. So that was a lot of stress, a lot of, uh, um, you know, a lot of things to, to be juggling. Um, and we were fortunate that it, it turned out that the science did come out, that these, these health effects were able to be confirmed. Uh, it took a long time, uh, uh, but, you know, it's, we've learned a lot from that process, but, um, you know, I, I don't know how we could have done it, frankly, any different at this point. So it seems to be clear from, again, from the story, I know sadly Mr. Tennant and his wife both came to cancer, but it didn't seem like he was chasing the money, he was chasing justice. So talk to me about what was finally, you know, the, the judgment, the result, and then what should have happened, the perfect world, what, as far as accountability should have happened to, to the company and the people responsible for this particular element? Yeah, you know, um, as you mentioned, unfortunately, Mr. Tennant and his wife um, passed away before the the scientific findings were confirmed. Um, the 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 scientific process we've been talking about that lasted all these years and involved tens of thousands of people it finally wrapped up in 2012. And at the end of that process, we were able to confirm that PFOA, just one of these PFOS chemicals, was linked with six different diseases. Testicular cancer was one of them. Now, remember, we saw that in the rats in the 80s, but DuPont and 3M had been denying that had, that was related to humans. So we had to go through all of this to finally confirm what had already been in those documents for decades. But anyway, we, we were able to confirm that the PFOA was linked with causing testicular cancer, kidney cancer, ulcerative colitis, thyroid disease, preeclampsia, and high cholesterol. And once those findings were confirmed, again, but with these independent scientists, that triggered a huge cascade of events. That finally prompted the US EPA to go out and start looking for this chemical and the related chemical, PFOS, in drinking water across the country. You know, PFOA, as I mentioned, was a C8 that 3M had made. 3M had also been making this very closely related chemical called PFOS famously used in things like Scotchgard or firefighting foams. So when the data came out on PFOA, US EPA realizing these two chemicals were very closely related, started going out and saying, let's see if this chemical is a nationally occurring drinking water issue, because if so, we'll start the process to regulate it. So they started going out and sampling, and sure enough, these chemicals were starting to be found all over the country, because one of the things that happened was people started realizing 
um, these chemicals, particularly PFOS, have been used in firefighting foam. And the firefighting foam, AFFF, aqueous film forming foam, this type of foam had been used to combat petroleum fires. Well, that stuff had been sprayed for decades outside of airports, military bases, fire stations all over the country. So the Department of Defense, realizing this, put together a list of different places where the stuff might have been used and went out and started sampling. Other places started sampling. What we saw beginning you know, a couple of years after that was this stuff was everywhere. And so what, what, uh, we've, as that information came out, it triggered EPA to finally start the process to look at, should we regulate this stuff? But what it also did is it said under our settlement, anybody that in that community of 70,000 people that had one of these six diseases, they were now allowed to move forward and get compensation in trials to go after DuPont. DuPont could not dispute that these chemicals could cause these diseases under our settlement. We had 3,500 people just in this one community come forward with one of these diseases. We started taking those cases to trial in 2015. And the first one went to trial, six weeks of trial where we laid out all this evidence. DuPont was found liable for having caused cancer in a lady whose drinking water is contaminated. Three more trials, you know, two, it, uh, more verdicts against DuPont, punitive damages, including that the company acted with conscious disregard. So these trials are occurring. They're being found liable. But really, nobody else around the country knows about this. There's really nobody realizes this isn't just West Virginia. All this sampling that's going on, nobody really knows that's happening. That data is going into EPA, but nobody else really knows about it. Things all changed dramatically in 2016, in January, when Nathaniel Rich published an article in the New York Times Magazine. And it summarized this whole story, talked about these trials. And for the first time, people across the country started realizing, wait a minute, so this chemical might, because what Nathaniel also pointed out was the chemical was being found in other places across the US. So that prompted people to start calling state regulators, governor's office, representatives, hey, what's this chemical and what's the safe level for it? Now, those of you who've seen the movie or, or the film realize, remember I sent the letter to the US EPA back in 2001, alerting them, this stuff is out there, we need to look into it. Nothing, had really nothing had happened. <laughs> but once this article came out in 2016, people started demanding, not, you know, what is the safe level Four months later, May of 2016, US EPA came out with its first drinking water guideline for these chemicals, PFOA and PFOS in drinking water, no more than 70 parts per trillion. That prompted more testing and suddenly from that point forward, almost every day in this country and now worldwide, people are finding these chemicals in their water above those levels or lower than that. And so it's led to massive testing, but still, there wasn't much understanding outside these places where this stuff was found that these chemicals even existed. And one day uh, I got a call from Mark Ruffalo who said, hey, how is this happening? I just read this, this article in the, in the New York Times Magazine. How is something like this happening in the United States? And nobody's talking about this. Nobody knows this chemical could be all over the country 
why are we not getting this story out? Why is it on the front page of the New York Times magazine, not the New York Times newspaper? Why is it not on the front pages? And how do we get this story out? And that led to him putting, you know, being able to put together an incredible team that then were able to bring the film Dark Waters out. Documentary, The Devil We Know, was put together as well. I sat down and wrote the book Exposure, all trying to find ways to get the story out to the broader population. That finally started to happen. We finally start to see this information seep out. And then really what, what, what started happening in the last couple of years as the story has come out, people have started to ask, well, where are these chemicals coming from? What products have they been used in? And as we already had identified firefighting, one of the, one of the more recent things we've also started to realize is you've got groups within, this, within the country that are particularly exposed. Like, think about it. Who's, who's spraying that firefighting foam? It's the firefighters. <laughs> and then we start to realize the firefighting community not only didn't know about the foam, but they didn't realize that their turnout gear, the gear that they've been wearing historically was coated with certain types of treatments that were made using some of these chemicals and that that stuff might actually be on the turnout gear. And that gear, as it breaks down over time, and as it's worn and used in the firehouse and the dust comes out, that that gear might be a source of exposure to these chemicals as well. So over the last year or so, that information started to come out. And then people realize it's not just firefighters, but it's what about people that are buying waterproof cosmetics, uh, computer chips, uh, you know, fast food wrappers and packaging. This stuff is everywhere. So we're, as it's been incredible to see how much power uh, there, there is behind getting a story out like this through having these films, the book, the documentary, that raising people's awareness is leading to people finally knowing, hey, this stuff's out there. How can I start to minimize my exposure? And that's, that's finally beginning because we're finally getting to, starting to realize which products these things have been used in, and people are finally starting to be able to make a choice to say, I don't want those in those products. I want that taken out. And we're seeing that that's having incredible power. Companies are starting to come forward and say, based on market demand, we will remove these now from these products going forward. And it's taken a long time to get there, but it's starting to happen. So really, when you look at the story, I'm hoping people realize, you know, it's, it's an optimistic story because it's showing people standing up and demanding things change. It can work. You know, it might take a long time to get there, but ultimately that truth comes out, things can change and, we, and it can be fixed. Well, first, it's amazing when you think this all stemmed from a farmer picking up a phone. And, and here we are now with this, this huge element. The second thing, and something I talk about a lot here because my community, the fire service, I've written one book. And I'm about to start a fiction because I want, again, a different lens. And then, you know, who knows if it's ever made into a TV series or a film or there's another medium that you can, you know, share this message. But there's no better time, I think, than the last few years, both administrations, where you realize that you can't just expect people in, government buildings to fix things for you that you have to band together and be part of the solution yourself and with the fire community specifically 
you know, I've buried so many people. That's why I started this podcast because I was sick of going to funerals. So it's that simple. And you look at the fact that we were all exposed to AFFF. I mean, I can, I've lost count how many times I was, you know, flowing that foam and we're wearing the gear. And even if we clean the gear, we're working out in the gear. A lot of us that are taking our job seriously. So now your sweat is now <laughs> absorbing, even if it's brand new and clean, it might be absorbing some of the PFAS. And then you add sleep deprivation, which is a huge thing that I discuss on here. So you're breaking down the immune system. So the people that are being exposed to more carcinogens than the average person has some of the most diminished immune systems as well. So, you know, it's such a powerful, you know, perspective. And I thank you so much because the average person is now at risk, you know, has a higher risk now of, of some of these diseases. But then the people that have used these in their careers, there's a real understanding now because we hear this this PFAS being thrown around, but I don't think many of us, myself included, really understand it. And now, you know, you spent an hour to really explain it and educate us, not only, you know, if you're wearing the uniform, how exposed we are, but that your unborn child or your, your grandmother in another state might equally be as exposed through their drinking water. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very concerning when you, when you step back and look at just the scope and scale of this. I don't know if we've seen something, you know, that's got such global impacts as this stuff, you know, because keep in mind, it's in the blood of almost every person. Babies are born pre-polluted with this. I mean, it moves through the placenta from mother to unborn child. So babies are born with these chemicals already in their blood. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's in all these products. It's in our air, our water, our soil. Stuff's being found in polar bears. I mean, it moves globally through the air, through the rain. So it's, it's a massive eco, uh, issue. And when you stop and think about it, you know, you mentioned the immune impacts. One of the most disturbing aspects of these chemicals is, you know, I mentioned the six diseases that were linked back in 2012. Well, science has, has continued to roll on and additional studies have been done. And some of the most troubling studies are those that are finding that these, these chemicals can impair our immune function. And you think about the cascade of things that flow from that, <laughs> you know, from having an impaired immune system. And one of the other aspects people are looking into, in fact, the ATSDR CDC is looking at this right now is the, the potential ability of these chemicals to not only impair our immune system, but decrease the effectiveness of vaccines. Yeah, and think about that. Well, we're in a global pandemic. Chemicals that have that potential impact that are in our blood, in our air, in our water, in our soil. Why aren't we talking about this? <laughs> Why isn't this a bigger issue? Um, uh, you know, and so raising awareness you know, is critically important, uh, you know, that people understand, you know, what these things are, what their impacts are, what the, what the scale and scope of it is, so that we can start demanding, you know, that things be changed. And we're seeing that impact. And again, you know, as the firefighting community is becoming aware of this and is demanding change, you know, among suppliers and as community groups and others are, are coming forward, we're seeing things finally start to change. In fact, we saw a dramatic reflection of that just last week when um, at the National PFAS Conference in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, the US EPA um, you know, made their announcement um, dropping the, the drinking water guidelines from 70 parts per trillion to levels for PFOA and PFOS that are, current, that are right now below the levels you can even detect in most labs. Uh, 
So they're sending a very strong message that looking at the science, there's a concern about even detectable levels of these chemicals in drinking water nationwide. So it's, it's um, you know, it's just really, I think, a powerful um, indication of how serious we should be taking the, the potential health impacts from these chemicals at, at fairly low levels. Um, you know, so it's something that we really ought to be, be talking about. And I'm very uh, happy that, you know, you've to, to be in a forum like this, you know, reaching out, particularly with firefighting community. Um, Cause it's, it's, it's really distressing when you, when you learn about how many folks still really aren't aware of this and still really don't understand why this is a concern um, and uh, the types of things that, that can be done, you know, to fairly easily to at least minimize some of this exposure. You know, I've, I've heard some of the representatives from the firefighting community talk about, you know, not wearing this stuff, um, you know, the, the gear, for example, unless you're actually in the fire, you know, and not, not working out in it or taking steps to clean, you know, in the firehouse to get rid of this dust. You know, Dr. Peasley at Notre Dame, has done some groundbreaking uh, work, you know, to, 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 to confirm and analyze, you know, how much of this stuff might be coming off in firehouses. So anything that we can do to help raise understanding and awareness, um, the better. Now, as far as a deterrent, you know, when, when you look at, for example, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, a lot of lives were lost, you know, I mean, probably billions, I'm assuming, if not you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of equipment was left there and no accountability whatsoever. So there's no there's no deterrent for that happening again. With DuPont, you know, you hear so many times with, with these large organizations, a financial hit may not even really register because the profits far outweigh the fine that they were given. How do we hold these people accountable to truly set a precedent so it doesn't happen again, so that there is some sort of justice outside of a financial amount? Well, you know, it's a question I often hear, you know, why, how, how does this happen? And, and, and why aren't we doing more to, 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 to make sure that the folks that did this are held responsible? Um, you know, in, in the one community where DuPont entered into this settlement, the one where we had the, the health studies and, um, you know, th there have been settlements there, you know, of, uh, over six, seven hundred million for the folks impacted in that community. But in other places across the country and across the world where these chemicals are also in the drinking water, we've now found them in these other places or in people's blood. You know, th these companies are continuing to deny responsibility. And unfortunately, it's the, the costs of dealing with all this, putting in water filtration systems, you know, trying to clean this out of the water, the health impacts on people, that's being pushed on to all of us. The people that, the, you know, the innocent exposed populations are the ones being told, we have to prove, you know, that these things are harmful. And unless and until we do, you know, these companies are denying responsibility. You know, we saw even the president uh, get up recently and and, and note that PFAS was a national issue that we need to be addressing and allocating $10 billion under the infrastructure bill, you know, to deal with PFAS, you know, which, which really, I think, emphasizes the national significance and importance of this issue. But the concern is 
that 10 billion, that's taxpayer money. That's the money from us. Why are the companies who did this not paying for these costs? That's where we ought to be getting the money. And, you know, we're, we're involved in litigation all over the country right now on behalf of people who've been impacted by this, trying to make sure that those costs are borne by the folks who did this. Because remember, these are not naturally occurring. If you find this stuff in the water, in the soil, in your blood, we know where it came from. We know who created them. They're like fingerprints back to these companies. And it'd be pretty easy you know, to, 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 to know who's responsible here. Um, but you know, that's a battle that wages, unfortunately, um, across the country and across the world at present uh, to, to make sure that the people who actually caused this problem and knew about this decades ago are the ones who pay for it, not us. Absolutely. Well, I want to get some closing questions, but one more area just before we do. You mentioned a, a new lawsuit that is literally looking far wider than, than um, that West Virginia uh, community and is uh, kind of spearheaded by a firefighter this time. So talk to me about that case. Yeah, well, you know, as we started to realize that as PFOA and PFOS were being phased out, um, we saw all these additional PFOS coming out into the world. Things like, you know, with a couple fewer carbons, C6s like Gen X or C4, or we saw things with more carbons, C9, C10s. As, as those came out and as some of those start getting found in the water, like Gen X in the water of hundreds of thousands of people in North Carolina, what we heard the company say was, all the science, that was all done on PFOA. That science panel you set up, that was on PFOA. You don't have any evidence showing these other ones cause harm. And now you, the exposed people, it's your burden to show that they're harmful. Meanwhile, these, the companies that are making them, pumping them out, aren't doing those studies, and they're not providing the funding necessary to do those studies. And they're saying, well, it takes tens of thousands of people to do a study big enough to show cancer. And unless you've done that, you don't have enough, you know, there's not, it's the study's not big enough. You can't draw conclusions. So what, what we tried to do is come up with a way to say, look, the science is in on PFOA at a minimum showing serious health impacts. But we also know that PFOA in our blood is mixing with these other PFOS now. And if you, if the companies making those are going to say that there's not enough data out there to tell us what, what they're doing when they mix in our blood, you should be paying the independent scientists to do whatever studies are necessary, not tell us we have to do it and pay for it. So I've filed a case where we are seeking to have a court essentially empower a new scientific panel to look at this mix of PFOA and other PFOS in our blood. And we're seeking to bring it on behalf of anyone who's got these chemicals in their blood across the United States and to have the court empower these, these scientists to do whatever studies, testing are necessary to tell us what they're doing to us and to have the companies have to fund those studies. And so we, we were fortunate to have the court allow us to proceed as a class action at this point on behalf of everybody subject to Ohio laws. And it's gonna be subject to further briefing to figure out exactly how many millions of people are in that class. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that that um, will, will allow us to move forward and get the science confirmed on these other PFAS as well. 
Um, and as you indicated, our lead plaintiff is an Ohio firefighter. So just circling round the ethical side, you started your career working with these corporations. And as we discussed black and white, there was, you know, a gray area of ma mainly, you know, well-intentioned people trying to f move forward in industry. What is so different about the business culture in DuPont that created this complete lack of ethics when you've worked with companies that are, are seemingly polar opposite to this? You know, that's a, it's a great question, but one that I think has a very complicated answer. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are so many different factors that led to how we got here and, and why these decisions were made, who made those decisions. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, some of it depends on, frankly, the way the company was structured you know, how their corporate office interacted with their different business units and the flow of information and the chain of command and how the scientists and lawyers, you know, were separate from the business people. And in fact, there have been papers that have been written um, recently, um, one in particular by Zingales that looked at how does a decision like this happen? You know, what makes it, quote, economically rational for a company to do what DuPont did, um, you know, because of the fact that even once they're caught and even after they have to pay penalties and settlements and hundreds of millions, does that still end up being an economically rational decision based on the amount of profit that was made in the meantime? And, and you know, what can be done to change that? So those types of decisions aren't made going forward. So it's um, um, a, you know, an incredibly complex problem that led to this outcome. Well, I thank you so much for your perspective and kind of walking us through this. If I could just throw a few closing questions at you before I let you go. Um, the first thing I want to make sure everyone knows, so your book is uh, Exposure. So firstly, tell everyone where they can find that. Um, it's uh, published by Simon & Schuster, Atria Books. Um, it's available on Amazon, most major booksellers online. Um, um, so yeah, it's a hard copy and paper paperback. And there's, even, there's an audio version where Mark Ruffalo reads the first chapter and then uh, Jeremy Bob does the, uh, the narration for the rest. Beautiful. So the first of the closing questions, are there any other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion or completely unrelated. Oh, you know, there's um trying to try and remember the name now, but there was a book, an earlier book by Callie Lyons back in the early 2000s. Um, I think the, 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 it's, it's a titled C8. I don't remember what the subtitle is, uh, but kind of looks at some of this history as well. Um, uh, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. There are a couple of other books as well. Um, um, it'll come to me. I'm just not remembering the names right now. No problem at all. So the same question with the film. So again, Dark Waters was the dramatized version with Mark Ruffalo. Uh, the documentary was The Devil We Know. I think those two complement each other so well. So what about other films and or documentaries that you love personally? Yeah, uh, you know, um, there was an early documentary that was actually done by Swedish filmmakers back in 2012 called The Toxic Compromise that you may still be able to find maybe on YouTube. It's uh, English subtitled, so you can, you know, it's, it's looking at, um, 
basically from a perspective of finding these chemicals in a newborn baby in Sweden, you know, and trying to, trying to explain where they came from and how that happened. Um, uh, there are, um, uh, I think, some other documentaries that are in the works as we speak. Um, so hopefully there'll be even more stories like what, uh, what and, you know, you'll be able to see what's really happening in these communities. Um, I think that was the really powerful part of what you see in The Devil We Know and in Dark Waters is you get to see how something like this impacts real people in real communities. And so there are other efforts underway, I know, to, to document similar things in other communities that are experiencing the same problem um, and to see what really happens, you know, what happens to real families and real communities dealing with this. Yeah, I think that's what I really got from it. When you talk, when it is in print, for example, then you're looking at statistics, you're looking at numbers, you're looking at, you know, court cases. But what really jumps out from the films is the human pain and suffering. And I'm sure if you looked at a documentary on Chernobyl and the surrounding areas, you'd probably see a similar kind of thing. But the impact on Bucky, for example, and his family and being, you know, a, a child growing up initially homeschooled and then having to go to school for the first time and you've got, you know, the, the, your facial symmetry is different than the children that you're sharing a classroom with and there's the you know the bullying element and some of the the pain from the procedures he goes through this is one child one unborn child and the ripple effect of you know some of these economic decisions on so much pain suffering physically and mentally of the entire community that is a story i think that's told so well in both of the two films that you were a part of yeah, you know, and it's um, it was really an honor and uh, to be able to participate in those and to be able to help bring those those stories out, um, you know, because I think it's 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 been powerful for people to see, you know, that wait a minute, this this isn't just you know happening to these people in West Virginia, uh, and to realize this is this is in all of us, you know, the, these things are impacting all of us. We share a common problem here. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, and, and unless you've already had him, I would highly recommend uh, Dr. Graham Peasley uh, at Notre Dame, uh, who's been doing some of the, the research on um, looking at these materials from from different um, like turnout gear and, and, and that kind of um Oh, God, there's so many folks within the fire community. Um, I can I can provide you a list. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Yeah, obviously Jim himself is a you know a huge um, advocate, and I've had him on the show, and I've been on his as well. But as a firefighter that's gone through ca cancer and, and survived, I mean, you know, it's it's obviously something he's very passionate about. But yeah, I mean, he sounds amazing as well. Yeah, Diane Cotter um, and her husband Paul have been, you know, very outspoken advocates on helping raise awareness of these issues within the firefighting community. You know, if you haven't spoken to them, they they have powerful story. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah, I haven't had either of them yet, so I will work on both of those. I appreciate the uh, the recommendation. So the last question before I make sure everyone knows where to find you if they want to reach out. What do you do to decompress? Well, uh, you know, I have, I've got my, my three boys. We like to watch movies. <laughs> we like to, uh, uh, you know, just basically, yeah, I even mentioned this in the book, you know, I, uh, watching cartoons is visually sort of tune out and, uh, um, uh, you know, 
be outside doing um, you know anything outside in the in the yard, you know, going for walks, anything like that, just to, to tune the brain off for a while. Well, in in the film, you have that scene where you have the TIA. Um, again, I'm assuming that stress was a huge element. Once you got that um, decision. Were you able, you personally, to step back a little bit and disconnect after having that fight and that pressure of seven years with no results? Um, <laughs> I wish I could say that was the case, but I mean, I've I've never really, never really kind of figured out what was going on there. Um, you know, we've been able to keep things under control, um, but um, um, it just uh, I've tried not to let that you know, distract from what needs to be done and moved forward. Just uh, um, uh, there are things you can't control and things you can. And that's one of the things I just, you know, figuring out what was going on. (laughs) It's not something I could control at that point. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad that you're doing well now. Um, Well, I just want to thank you so much. Um, For people listening, I'm sure there's a lot, you know, that want to reach out. Where are the best places online to learn more about you or reach out to you? Uh, you can always reach me through uh, all my contact information is is posted on my law firm website, taftlaw.com, T-A-F-T-L-A-W.com. Um, you know, my phone, email, all of that, and happy to, to, to chat with folks. Um, so um, looking forward to it. Well, Rob, I just want to say thank you. I mean, um, Jim told me about you a long time ago. We went back and forth for a bit. Um, having, like I said, watched the film, watched the documentary, listened to interviews that you've been on with other people. I was so moved by the story. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the pain and suffering element. I mean, how can you not be moved by that? But to, to hear someone who, you know, picked up the torch and against all odds kept fighting. I mean, it's such an inspirational story. And as you mentioned, it literally, you know, microorganismly, if that's a word and it's not, um, you know, affects every single one of us listening at the moment. So I just want to thank you so much for the work that you've done and for being so generous and coming on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you.